0: As we continue our discussion of the Tyndale House Greek New Testament with Dr. Jungkind, we're going to tackle some more in-depth questions about early translations of the New Testament into languages like Latin and Syriac, and how they factor into the textual criticism of the New Testament. We're also going to discuss some of the ways New Testament and Old Testament textual criticism differ especially in terms of reliance on manuscripts of translated versions as opposed to manuscripts of the original language they were composed in. Finally, we're going to hear Dr. Junkind share his biblical theology of the transmission of the text and why God has ordained that textual criticism be necessary. This is the Working for the Word podcast and I'm Andrew Case. Let's do this. Now, before we continue with the conversation about the Greek New Testament, I wanted to take a few minutes to highlight the Bible Translation Fellowship, and I asked the founder to share with us a little bit about it.
1: My name is Kyle, and I serve as the executive director of Bible Translation Fellowship. BTF exists to integrate Bible translation with the mission of the church. And what we mean by the mission of the church is the Great Commission as we see it played out in the book of Acts. So the call to make disciples of all nations and to see the Lord build a church of every tribe and language and people and nation. This involves the work of church planting and church strengthening. Evangelism leads to discipleship and gathering those disciples into local churches and then establishing them, strengthening them through the scriptures. And so scripture translated needs to be part of church planting, church strengthening, theological education. And this is what we mean by integrating Bible translation with the mission of the church. It used to be historically, especially during the Protestant Reformation, that in the confessions of the church and the statements of faith, Bible translation was front and center in terms of the the work that the church felt called by God to do in its missions work. So Second London Confession, the Westminster Confession in Chapter 1, Paragraph 8, both explicitly talk about Bible translation as part of what the church is called to. The 39 articles, the Irish articles, and on and on week ago. Bible translation should be front and center in terms of a local church's ministry and in its missions work. So if a church is passionate about church planting or church strengthening through theological education or, or other kinds of ministries, that align with the mission of the church, Bible translation is required in part and parcel of that. Whether Bible translation in terms of a first translation or a revision or a study Bible or all that goes along with Bible translation, both new and revisions. So advocacy, this is part of what BTF does, is just try to educate the church about Bible translation needs. The fact that only 10% of the world's languages have a full copy of the scriptures translated into their language this is what we exist for is to educate to advocate to mobilize churches to be more involved we also do recruiting not just recruiting individuals to be engaged in bible translation although we do that but also recruiting pastors we feel that if we recruit a pastor we are giving deference to the leaders of the church to the elders the, the pastors of the church who God has called to lead the church are the ones who are going to give sermon applications and cast a vision for people to give their lives. They're the ones who are going to write Bible translation into the missions philosophy and into the budget of the church. And so we want to recruit pastors of churches to be thinking how Bible translation should be integrated with their missions work. Besides advocacy and recruiting, we also do networking. So we've launched the Bible Translation Network. You can go to BibleTranslation.network to learn more. It's a means of trying to bring together people who are involved in missions, church planting, theological education, and Bible translation with donors and people who are working on Bible translation projects to work together to build teams to support one another. Besides advocacy, recruiting, and networking, we also provide consulting services. So if we do encourage a pastor to think about adding Bible translation to their missions philosophy, then we help those pastors to do that. We're... We're, we provide consulting services of how do you rewrite your missions philosophy? Do you ha- how do you have a missions handbook and a strategy where Bible translation is part of what the local church does in its missions work? But also in terms of consulting, we actually are trying to provide consulting services. So the consultant check is one of the parts of the Bible translation process. I myself am still a consultant in training, but once recognized, I'll be able to offer translation consulting services to Bible translation teams that are working and need that consultant check. So we also hope to recruit and train more consultants, people who may be working partly as a professor or as a pastor who can also serve as an exegetical advisor or a translation consultant or other means of serving on a Bible translation team. We would love to find ways to partner with, with others, so please check us out at BibleTranslationFellowship.org.
0: And I would also add that their website is very useful for people who are just starting out with an interest in Bible translation. For example, I often get questions about where to begin, where to get training, how to become a consultant, etc. So, if you go to their website, it has a really thorough page with information and links on where you can get training all over the world. So, definitely check that out if it's something you're interested in. And now, let's get back to Dr. Junkind. You talk about in your book that another difference between the Tyndale House version and the Nestle Longe is that you guys are compiling notes on all the decisions and what went behind those decisions. And so that will be available in a separate volume, I believe?
2: Yes, indeed. That's wonderful. And when will that be available? Uh, well, we're working hard on it. We have now, uh, so we made notes while we were doing it. Uh, while we were making the decision. So the original reasons are all there. Yeah. And now we are upping those notes to make them a little bit more readable, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, it still will not be um, a full justification for each and every decision. That's simply too much to sure. be able to, and would, would not be helpful. But, but yes, for uh, several hundred of them, we, we will uh, bring it out. Uh, we have done the Gospels and Acts, um, which is probably the hardest part of uh, of the Greek New Testament. The, yeah. the letters are, are much easier when it comes to the textual criticism. And, okay. and Revelation is so special that that in itself makes it easier as well. Okay. So will this be multi-volumes or just one? I hope we can limit it to... To one volume just for the sake of uh, not, not, not to drive people into unnecessary costs or to uh-huh. the, the amount of uh, shelf space you need for this. Okay. But, okay. But, but yes, we have too many words already for that, perhaps.
0: Right. Now, for the average Greek student, how approachable will this volume be? How easy to navigate?
2: I think we expect to have some knowledge of textual criticism. But we don't expect people to have years of experience. So if you have gone through your Greek classes at the sort of uh, at, at master's level, mm-hmm. and you've, you have a certain reading competence in, uh, in Greek, and you have done a couple of classes or perhaps a, a good introduction to textual criticism, it should be fairly obvious what's going on okay we, we don't want to aim sort of too high they, they are not my personal notes in that sense that they, they they are really kind of try to to communicate our thinking try to communicate our method mm-hmm. and and part of that is we tend to look at patterns in the whole manuscript tradition so you may have one example you know, for example where Echo men what we had in Romans 5 1, is changed from an indicative to a subjunctive or from a subjunctive to an indi- indicative. But it's actually quite useful to know that it happens a dozen of other places mm-hmm. in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. So that, that you learn to put an individual variant in the context of other variants that are taking place which hopefully sort of uh, gives people a broader view on the actual phenomena that is happening in a particular verse. Wonderful.
0: Yeah, that's really helpful. Now, if somebody were looking to get a, a good, solid introduction to New Testament textual criticism, what book would you point them to?
2: Of course, I would probably let people start with uh, my an introduction to the Greek New Testament Okay. Which is, of course, an introduction to a particular edition of the Greek New Testament, but I hope it is a sort of a gentle introduction into the whole field of manuscripts and and textual criticism at the same time. Yeah, I so agree. That, I think it is. It's an it's excellent source for that. That teaches you to start thinking about it. Then there is Metzger's The Text of the New Testament, which is very good on the history of textual criticism as mm-hmm. well. If right. You ton of information, very helpful stuff, and and then perhaps oh when, when it in addition to that it is either a book that teaches you to read a Greek New Testament manuscript because it does really help when you have you no know, when you sit down with a group of people or so and just read to a through a page of John 1. Mm -hmm. uh in in manuscripts because it helps you to relate the whole notion of textual variance to the actual artifact to know to to the parchment and to the Mm. letter shapes etc and to make that connection i think is of fundamental importance to to understand to get a good feel for textual criticism because otherwise a Textual variant in your Greek New Testament may grow out of proportion in in your thinking. When okay. you actually see that variant happening on the page in front of you, it it makes it more manageable. It becomes it makes it more real. It becomes touchable almost. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very healthy for this discipline.
0: Okay, thank you. Let's keep going with some. Concrete examples of some exciting discoveries you made in the process of compiling the Tyndale House version.
2: The first one we talked about already, that was uh, the uh, upoccupation of Allah. Mm -hmm. I I really could not find a grammar that actually gave any attention to this phenomenon. Yeah, and, and I've just checked uh, now whether it was just a figment of my imagination to, to some people who I respect highly when it comes to, to understanding of Greek or, or even sort of you know, teaching Koine Greek as a, as a living language. Sure. Uh, and all that feedback was, was immediately that, yes, of course, this is right. I mean, it was for, for them the most natural form. The other thing I, I learned about the uh, copying process which actually surprised me a little bit is that in the the course of copying a text tends to become more and more unmarked in a sense I mean copying itself is of course it's quite simple work it's monotonous it goes on for a long time I mean, you can have sort of five minutes enthusiasm that you're copying God's word or something. But Mm -hmm. but then boredom kicks in and your hand starts to hurt, etc. And what tends to happen is that a thing such as word order tends to drift towards the standard unmarked uh, word order.
0: Oh, yeah.
2: So that is the sort of normal thing that happens. uh, The text tends to become a little bit more gray, a little bit less vivid. I see. However, there are times, especially when when there's something dramatic happening in, in narrative, especially in prose where you can see an individual scribe making changes, quite often unique changes, where you can see that they are really involved in what's happening there, where where the text becomes more vivid, more accented, more dramatic almost in in some of the the word or the changes or uh, substitutions they make. Mm
1: -hmm. And it is
2: interesting to relate that to... To my own experience in either scholarly work or, or anything else, there are times that you do things on the automatic pilot. but there are times that suddenly you're really gripped by something and you see something and the adren- adrenaline kicks in and you 're really involved with either what you're reading or writing etc and that that will have an effect yeah so to see those kind of uh, almost opposite processes at work in the copying of uh, of text I thought well. Uh, was quite interesting.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: I've also Hmm. learned tons about individual manuscripts. One of the most important manuscripts is a big codex held in Vatican Library, therefore called uh, Codex Vaticanus. It has actually a proper shelf number. Uh, Mm -hmm. In Greek uh, apparatuses, it's B, Codex B. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a big fourth century manuscript. And for me, it was really exciting to see when I started to look at uh, some of its unique variants and patterns of variants and some of its spelling variants, that it goes back to a manuscript, either in one or two generations before, but at least very close, that was very carefully prepared. So you can almost Mm. see a scholarly hand in some of its unique features. Okay. Okay. It must have taken place somewhere in the 3rd or the 4th century, early 4th century. So it's nice to see that there were textual scholars at work mm. who, who do a fantastic job, you know, who we can relate to, who very carefully thought about spelling, who very carefully thought about the, the word order, Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, etc. their yeah is about. And that they actually, you can see their influence in the manuscript they produce. But I think that's just very fascinating and, and interesting. Mm. Uh, there are lots of very interesting things about Vaticanus because um, it also contains called the Septuagint. Mm, mm-hmm. And in Exodus, uh, Exodus 20, in the numbering of the Ten Commandments, it actually follows the Alternative numbering you will find in, in Hebrew manuscripts and some of the Hebrew manuscripts where the Ten Commandments are numbered slightly differently than how we would number them.
0: Than the Protestant tradition. Of, yeah. Okay. And, and yeah. there
2: are a couple of places where where Vaticanus probably shows that the underlying manuscript you know, had knowledge of a Semitic language, either Syriac or or, or Hebrew. So it's quite fascinating that Mm -hmm. you see glimpses of a very carefully prepared edition underneath one of our famous manuscripts.
0: Wonderful. Wow. Yeah, that is exciting to see. Now, when we talk about New Testament textual criticism, we tend to hear mostly about Greek manuscripts, but not much at all about Syriac or Latin witnesses or others. So, my question is, how do they factor into all of this
2: and, and why? Why or why not? Now, the, the old versions are important, but it's also easily to overestimate their importance. Mm-hmm. We know that very early on, translation was made from Greek into Latin. The problem is we don't know exactly where, how, and why it was made, and, and anyone, for example, kind of familiar with uh, Septuagint studies on the, the Greek Old Testament, will know about the importance and the problems uh, of a study of translation technique. Right. How was it translated? What, what were the specific weaknesses and strengths of a translation? Uh, We don't know about the specific circumstances of the old translations into uh, Syriac, Coptic, etc. Now, in in sort of kind of more modern terms, we don't know about their brief. We don't know about any stated interests of the stakeholders. Mm
1: -hmm. Was the
2: translation made with a view to be acceptable for the receiving church? Or was it made in order to create a church that could receive those scriptures? And Mm. without sort of all these questions about what we know now are are actually very important questions, it remains slightly difficult to properly assess the translation technique and the circumstances behind those old translations. Right. Pete Williams did a lot of work on the Syriac version, both in the Old and the New Testament. And he actually found that in most traditional uh, apparatuses to the Greek New Testament, that in a sizable proportion, sort of maybe 20 or 30 percent or so, the Syriac was cited incorrectly. And incorrectly meant that sometimes it was cited in favor of a Greek variant. But actually, you know, the the particular shape of the Syriac was determined by the rules of the language rather than by the underlying Greek, by trying to represent the underlying Greek. I see. And It is that sort of problem which constantly sort of gets in the way of using these versions as a sort of on a par with the internal Greek manuscripts. However, at very best, a translation can give us a view on what particular Greek manuscript was used at a specific time and place. And then, of course, there are uncertainties with it, but at least it is an additional uh, element of of information. And, of course, every version has its own transmission history as well. And you need to know the transmission history of the particular version in order to be able to properly judge their their value for their support of a particular variant. Mm -hmm. But the bigger the variant, the more important a version becomes. When it comes to things like the uh, presence or absence of the story of the woman caught in adultery, right, it's pretty clear in, in any version whether or not it was there. You don't always know why it is there or why it's not there. Sure. But at least The the facts of the matter are there easier to to establish. Yeah, when uh, I always have have a couple of versions open, especially the Latin, I I think the Latin I find the most useful one. Um, And my Syriac and Coptic are a bit rusty, to be honest, as well. Mm -hmm.
0: Now, if I may, I didn't give you a heads up about this, but if I may ask specifically about the Peshitta that was found in St. Catherine's Monastery, there's been people who have begun a sort of movement, I think it's sometimes called the Peshitta Primacy, talking about the superiority or importance that hasn't been given to
2: this manuscript, which is quite early, if I I remember right. No, the actual manuscript is much later. Oh, it is? Okay. It's a sort of thought that the translation into Syriac was made quite early, yes. Okay, okay. Is the, the manuscript 5th century then, 5th or 6th yeah, century? Yeah, I believe so. Uh, the most sort of extreme form of the, the kind of movement you're hinted at mm-hmm. is not that it is said that it's underestimated, but actually that the uh, particular version is superior to what we have. In the right, book. right, Exactly. And at that point, we are in all sorts of kind of speculative theories. Sure. Because it it seems without doubt that each of the books of the New Testament we have was originally written in Greek. Mm -hmm. Even though, of course, Papias records the tradition that Matthew wrote a gospel in Hebrew first, But it may not be uh, actually what happened, because Matthew's gospel betrays a lot of Hebrew, that's clear, but it is still composed in in Greek. Sure. Um, It is argued that because Jesus spoke something like Aramaic, very close to Syriac, therefore the Syriac version is more authentic to the words of Jesus which is dubious on a couple of fronts. First of all, it seems to me that, that Jesus was in all likelihood, uh, at least bilingual, so mm-hmm. w- we've spoken Greek and uh, Aramaic, Hebrew, so, so that argument ha- has, has problems. And sure. and secondly, you know, what happened in history is normally what is supposed to have happened in history. So in that sense, to have the New Testament originally composed in Greek, I, I therefore think that you must have very compelling reasons to prefer a particular version above the original Greek. And right. of course, that, that error has been made repeatedly in church history. People like Augustine oh, at, at one point preferred the, the Greek Septuagint over the Hebrew original. Exactly. Simply. So this type of 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 thinking is not unparalleled in church history, but it Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that it is therefore either justified or uh, arguable.
0: How would you compare then the Septuagint to the Syriac, for instance, or the Septuagint to the Latin of the New Testament? Because We have so much weight that's put on the Septuagint, even though there is the same kind of ambiguity, the same kind of mystery behind all of what went into the translation of the Septuagint as there is behind the Syriac. But when we look at our English Bibles, we constantly are seeing in the Old Testament, well, this is what the Septuagint says, or this is what the Syriac says, much more than we see in the Greek New Testament. So could you help us understand why?
2: It has to do with the completely different nature of Old Testament textual criticism and New Testament textual criticism. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, we are, first of all, different. Uh, talking about completely different timescales. Also, uh, the Masoretic tradition is fairly uniform. It is not completely uniform, but it is fairly uniform. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if you go back from the uh, Masoretic tradition, then... Uh, who is it, uh, Old Testament text critic, who basically says that the Masoretic tradition goes back to the text of the temple. Emanuel Tov. Oh, yes, Tov. He wrote, I think, an introduction to the Septuagint or introduction to Old Testament criticism. And it has about mm-hmm. four or five editions. And in every, in each edition, he becomes clearer in arguing for basically the continuation of the Masoretic text, basically to the text kept in the temple. And uh, I, I find that pretty persuasive okay so we have the masoretic text now there are at times real differences between uh latin syriac and and the hebrew text and in that sense many of the latin actual manuscripts predate the oldest hebrew manuscript we have of a particular passage right so that is why quite a bit of place is given To the the Latin and Syriac in Old Testament translation, Mm -hmm. um, Old Testament textual criticism, which of course is found in the footnotes of the Hebrew Bible rather than in the actual text itself. Right. Because in order to be able to put it in the actual text, you first have to back translate from Latin or Syriac into Hebrew, and you, you never know whether or not you do it correctly, and put that text in the main text. So that would mean a truly critical Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. To be honest, I, I think there, there is a tradition in Old Testament scholarship that has perhaps become too comfortable in accepting those amendations from, from Syriac or Latin or, or septuagint into. Mm. So, for example, if you if you see the the many footnotes in a sort of conservative styled translation, as the ESV or version of the ESV, and most of the footnotes, of course, were taken over from the RSV, which goes mm-hmm. below the ESV, there are quite a number of footnotes where I think that there is no obvious need. To go with the Greek, Latin or Syriac text in that particular instance, but that the Hebrew text in itself still makes perfect sense.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So so I, I am sometimes a little bit afraid that people tend to be very, very on the letter, on the precision, etc., or when it comes to New Testament textual criticism, etc. Mm-hmm. But actually leave the perhaps sometimes bigger problems that there are methodologically and practically in the Old Testament sort of to a side which tends to be a discussion mainly carried among the hyper-experts.
0: Right. This is really interesting because in seminary I was never given any kind of guidance as to some of these distinctions between Old Testament and New Testament textual criticism I think they just expected us to figure them out, and I have not seen them in any literature either. A uh, kind of systematic comparison between the two fields. I think that's really helpful to understand where your you know each one is coming from. So, thank you.
2: At uh, Tyndall House, if may I put a little bit plug for the research institution where where I work, Tyndall House, Cambridge. We actually are trying to combine a number of our uh, different projects under the sort of big heading of how did the Bible come together, which yeah. is you know, supposed to have various uh, aspects. One of them is actually sort of the, the very long genesis of the, of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament, where we, you know, we have different types of Hebrews with different dialectical issues, but we also have a sort of testimony of the Old Testament itself, of, of how it comes together, uh, and to put that in, into sort of ancient Near Eastern context, but then to follow that story into the New Testament so that we we have a sort of a complete story to tell, which would not hide the differences between the field, but actually try to bring them together under one bigger narrative or so, but mm. this will be a multi-year, if not multi-decennia project to do it at the thoroughness we, we hope it will be, uh, That's it will be done. That's great. Wonderful. Now, going back to these
0: other translations of the New Testament, do they appear in the apparatus
2: of the Tyndale House Greek New Testament? No, we have left them out simply because it is very difficult to cite them convincingly. So we have that sort of hands-on experience in the actual Greek text, mm-hmm. uh, in the Greek manuscript, etc. We have handled the manuscript. we know what's happening, we know the scribal tradition, etc. To have that same level of expertise in all the other traditions, uh, we, we simply do not have that in-house. Okay. Then there there is the thing that it is very rarely that the testimony of the versions of the early translations really tips the scales of the decision into one or the other direction. They can okay. increase your confidence into one or the other direction, but mm. they will not tip the scales. So when it comes to the information you need, the sort of minimum amount of information, you need to make a responsible decision, then the Mm. versions almost fall under the bar in the sense that they are not decisive, at least in in the way how we approach uh, textual criticism. If you have a sort of method that allows for a much bigger space for these versions, Mm -hmm. Then they may actually tip the scales. And that has happened in the most recent version of the NIV, for example, in Mark 141, hmm. where we have Jesus looking around, that's one, or becoming angry. Oh yes. yes. It's mm-hmm. quite a famous variant. Now there's only one Greek manuscript that has the reading being angry or gistais, which is D, Codex Bsi. Actually, manuscript kept in mm-hmm. the university library here. But there are a number of Latin manuscripts that have the same reading, being angry. Mm-hmm. So, you no, know, that might perhaps you not know, tip the tip the scale in translating rather than having compassion into being angry. So it has happened there. I don't think it was a justified decision, but that's another story, of course. Okay. If your critics said, "Well, that's not responsible,"
0: or that's it's not thorough enough to not include the versions. Are there many people who are saying that? And if so, what is the answer to those people? If it was a short answer.
2: I think it's a very fair critique that it is not found in the apparatus, but when, when preparing it, of course, we we, we kept an eye on what the versions are doing. I mean, that is part of of doing textual criticism anyway. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, However, we are not particularly impressed with the value of the versions, and that is the reason why we don't have them in our apparatus. And even our apparatus, sort of in our justification of some of the uh, variants, uh, have only a very small selection of of Greek variants, or of Greek manuscripts mentioned, sort of the absolute bare minimum. which is more an indication of, look, this is roughly what's going on, rather than to give the reader a full uh, justification of why the particular decision was taken.
0: Yeah. Now, are there other uh, editions of the Greek New Testament that do have all of that information from the Latin,
2: Syriac, Coptic, Georgian, Armenian? Uh, well, the UBS tends to give Most of that information in the variants they discuss, so they don't discuss many variants, but the -hmm. ones they do, they will give very extensive information. Okay. However, the information they give on the Greek manuscripts is much more secure than the information they give on the versions. So there is a sense of difference in the amount of trust you should ascribe to that extra information I see the same as uh, the UBS gives a lot of uh, a lot of references to church fathers who either support one or the other text
0: Mm -hmm. but the
2: use of church fathers to establish a text unless they specifically comment on the details is also fraught with difficulties sure wonderful
0: Thank you for answering all those details. <laughs> I'm just very My curious point. about all of that, and it's, it's really interesting to me. Now, is your hope that future Bibles across the world be translated exclusively from the Tyndale
2: House Greek New Testament in the future, the text that you guys have chosen? Oh, exclusively. I am not sure, because I'm very much aware that every text in existence has disadvantages and has advantages. Mm. I think my my primary hope for Bible translation is that translations are made from the Greek and the Hebrew. Right. So that would be already be tremendous gain if the, the knowledge of those uh, languages will be spread so widely that, that we get translation done by native speakers from the Hebrew and Greek into their own language. That is my first dream, and that is probably Amen. not uh in the near future. <laughs> and then, yes, I, I hope that, that people will use the Tindal House Greek New Testament for specific readings, for, for example, also to get ideas how to present the text mm. into different languages do we always need to mark off citations from the old testament in italics and bold and set them off from the remainder of the text because that's not really done in greek manuscripts in in that Mm. way Mm. so that so there are a lot of things there i hope that because spelling is an important issue that people will even think in but How does spelling work in our target language? Mm -hmm. So if we can have any influence on sort of increased fidelity and effectiveness and of new Bible translations, yes, yes, please. Lots of nerds such as me who, who dived into the original languages. We all started off because we wanted to become Bible translators. Same with me. Oh, okay. And if I can do anything that actually uh, <laughs> helps in that big project, no, oh, then uh, then I'm a very very happy man.
0: Amen. Now to finish off, I'm really interested to be able to share your biblical theology of the transmission
2: of the text with our listeners. I'd love to hear you share about that. Yeah, thank you for that. And I I hope I can keep it sort of brief. The first question I think that deserves to be asked is how come that God has allowed textual variants to come into being? Mm -hmm. I mean, in a sense, he, he, he is powerful enough to prevent this, How come that we are in such a situation that textual criticism is actually needed? Yeah. And in order to understand that, uh, in a sort of biblicist approach, well, call it biblical theology, sometimes there's not that much difference between them, Mm -hmm. um, I started to trace down the transmission of the biblical text to the extent we find it in scripture. So the first time that we find anything written down is when Moses has to write down the curse on Amalek. And even in that context, it is already said that the writing down will serve as a testimony.
1: Mm-hmm. Now,
2: then we get, of course, the, uh, the majestic events at Mount Sinai where God himself inscribes with his finger you know, the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. And as a textual person... I am absolutely intrigued by how that would have looked like. Was it an alphabetic script that was used, or no? Oh, I don't think there were hieroglyphs that just came out of Egypt. Was it some sort of hieroglyphic or Demotic? I don't know, but mm-hmm. it could very well be an alphabetic script is is the notion uh, mm-hmm. there. Right. Then we get. Further, in Deuteronomy, so I'm following the internal chronology of scripture rather than than any reconstructed chronology of how books came into being. Um, In Deuteronomy, we find that the future king is supposed to make a copy of the law, this book, for himself, taken from that before the Levites. And I take that is that the king gets the privilege to make his own personal copy from the original scroll of the law that Mm -hmm. was kept by the Levites together with the tabernacle. Because the tabernacle was the place where the original book of Moses was to be kept. Mm -hmm. And we see that connection of scripture with the temple throughout the Old Testament or either the tabernacle or the temple with perhaps the exception of the book of Proverbs, where we get towards the end in Proverbs, a sort of editorial remark where these are also Proverbs uh, brought together or copied out by the servants of Hezekiah, Mm -hmm. which is the only place perhaps in Scripture where we get a reference to a committee, namely the servant of Hezekiah, right. who brought together that particular part of the book of Proverbs, which is, in a sense, uh, kind of fascinating that uh, here we don't have the temple authorities, but civil authorities who bring together a further part of, uh, of Scripture. Mm-hmm. That goes back the sort of authority of the temple in order to preserve Scripture, into the days of Jesus himself, where we find in Matthew 23, uh, the scribes and Pharisees are seated on Moses' seat. Do Mm -hmm. everything they say, but don't do according to their works. Mm -hmm. And we tend to concentrate on the latter. Don't do according to their work. Don't be a hypocrite like the scribes and Pharisees. Mm. But it is in a sense, interesting what Jesus affirms at that place. He says they are seated on Moses' seat. So there Jesus assumes an office, a seat of authority that goes from Moses through the temple authorities and ends, literally ends, with the scribes and and Pharisees. Hmm. We have a central authority that had as one of its tasks to preserve scripture. Mm-hmm. to make sure that scripture was there as it is. And of course, even the you know, Talmud uh, has references to the, uh, to the scrolls that were kept in the temple. Now, this mm-hmm. I learned from Immanuel Tov. The uh, Qumran community had, of course, broken with the temple tradition. And therefore, the most, the most uh, aberrant Hebrew texts of the Old Testament are often found in the Qumran community. And not from the other places in the Judean desert, which kept their ties with Jerusalem, with the temple, who would be responsible for proper issuing of the Hebrew scriptures. Mm-hmm. But then we go to the days of the New Testament. And of course, you know, the way how the church was structured is there would be no physical temple. No, it's the church itself that forms a spiritual temple. Oh, but what happens if there is no central authority anymore you know, where the uh, apostles could deposit the authoritative version of the letter to the Romans, et cetera? Well, the church is decentralized. It's decentralized by design. But that has one consequence for the scriptures of mm-hmm. the New Testament. And it means that they are not centrally copied, but copied basically all over the place, right? And in the textual criticism of the New Testament, you see that decentralized copying actually kind of you no know, uh, played out, where we have variants as you would expect would have happened in an uncontrolled situation. There is one great advantage, of course, of being having a spiritual temple over a physical temple. And that is that in the spiritual temple, it is the spirit who inscribes God's word on the heart of the people. So, though scripture is absolutely important, you know, every word that comes out from the mouth of God is, is, is food for every believer, mm-hmm. uh, scripture is massively important. It is ultimately applied into the lives of people, onto the hearts of people by a central authority, namely the spirit of of God who dwells in that that spiritual temple. And it is probably this line that, that starts by Moses and then continues in a very sort of transformed way into the new covenant, which forms an underlying biblical theology that actually explains how we ended up in a situation where we do need to do textual criticism on the text. Well, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure and a delight.
0: So thankful that you took extra time and it's going to be wonderful for our listeners. So
2: I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Andrew. It's absolutely a pleasure talking to you. It's a pleasure to talk about things that are close to my heart. So uh, thank you for uh, giving me the, the chance and the freedom.
0: Once again, as I mentioned last time, our guest has generously offered to give away five free hard copies of his book, An Introduction to the Greek New Testament, produced at Tyndale House, Cambridge. So, if you'd like to enter to win one of these copies, shoot me an email at the address in the description and tell me, number one, how you discovered this podcast, and number two, what one of your favorite episodes has been. The deadline to enter is the 17th of April. Or if you're a Mac or iPhone person, another way you can enter is by leaving a review on iTunes and sending a screenshot of that review to my email in the description. Working for the Word is a podcast where we believe that the Bible is a unified, God breathed, God centered, hope giving book, sweeter than honey and pointing to Jesus. This podcast exists. Ultimately to help us all treasure the Bible more, go deeper into it and become like the man of Psalm 1.